0: In his second letter to the Corinthians, Paul invites the church to participate generously in a special collection for the poor in Jerusalem. He inspires the Corinthians to give generously by mentioning the charitable example set forth by the Macedonian churches. Then Paul presents the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ as another example to motivate their generosity. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Finally, Paul just puts it to them straight by using an agricultural analogy. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So Farmer Brown, what size financial harvest will you bring home this year? I'm Ron Jones and this is Something Good.
1: Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians 9, verse seven, and this is Something Good Radio. Hello, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for being here for today's message with Dr. Ron Jones. The book of 2 Corinthians is largely dedicated to Paul's defense of his ministry but it also contains the largest section on stewardship and financial giving in the entire New Testament. Is tithing strictly an Old Testament idea? Is it part of the Mosaic Law? Is it still relevant today? Decide for yourself as Ron dives into this passage today as part of his continuing series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. Stay right here or visit somethinggoodradio.org to listen on demand. That's somethinggoodradio.org. While you're there, check out Something Good Television, Something Good Courses, Something Good Travel, and the new Something Good Digital Library. That's where you can search for biblical answers to your questions from nearly 30 years of Ron's Bible teaching ministry. From Atlantic Shores Baptist Church in Virginia Beach, Virginia, where he serves as lead pastor. Here's Ron in part two of his message, 2 Corinthians, Defense of Ministry.
0: Paul also details how he entrusted Titus and another brother to handle uh, the collection and the transportation of the offering to Jerusalem with integrity. Boy, how many times have we heard about financial, a lack of financial integrity in some church or some nonprofit organization? I love just the detail here in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 8 where Paul says, this is how we put you know, pads of integrity around the offering. I could sit here for a while if I had time and talk to you about how we have increasingly done that here at Atlantic Shores Baptist Church. Not that the place ever lacked financial integrity, but we have gone over and above to make sure anybody who handles the offering, we call it 360 eyes on it. And anybody on the finance committee or who counts money or deposits money, if they're uncomfortable with anybody looking over their shoulders and asking the hard questions, then they probably don't need to be on that committee. We're going to handle every dollar that comes in with integrity. And Paul establishes that in case there was any question among the Corinthians about how this money uh, was handled. Now, it's interesting uh, that this section of Scripture also becomes a place where some people who like to downplay the importance of tithing. They come here to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and say, oh, this is the largest section of Scripture about financial giving and financial stewardship in the church, but Paul never mentions tithing. And they use that as an excuse to say, well, tithing doesn't apply today. That's just an Old Testament thing. I did my doctoral research on financial stewardship in the local church. I was all over this passage. And here is my conclusion. There are two categories of giving In the Bible. There's a tithe, which is an apportionment, which means a tenth. And then there's this other category called a free will offering. In the Old Testament, uh, the Old Testament Israelites gave tithes. They gave numerous tithes under the Mosaic law, and it supported the theocracy. It was almost like a tax because they they gave up to about 30-some percent of their giving. But tithing actually predates the Mosaic law by 430 years because Jacob and Abraham tithed. And Abraham's example is very interesting. It wasn't because there was a law that God had given. Moses was another 430 years later. But Abraham tithed as an act of worship and as a lifestyle. He went to war against some kings in an effort to rescue his son Lot, and he came back with the spoils of war. And Genesis tells us that he took a tenth of that and gave it to King Melchizedek. He was a kind of mysterious figure in the Old Testament. He was the king of Salem, which became Jerusalem. And the writer of Hebrews fills in the gaps, and he refers to Melchizedek really as a type of Christ in the Old Testament. So for all those reasons, Abraham's example becomes very uh, telling to us and uh, establishes the tithe as an act of worship, and a lifestyle we practice, then you know uh, Moses comes along and builds the tabernacle. David and Solomon, you know, build the temple, and those dollars came in. Uh, they, they were free will offerings. They were called in the Old Testament. Um, David, you know, told uh, uh, the Old Testament folks to. Uh, give an amount God had placed on their hearts freely and wholeheartedly as they consecrated themselves to the Lord. In uh, uh, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 7, Paul says uh, regarding the Jerusalem offering, everyone should uh, give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. That's not a negation of the tithe. That's free will offering language. Because this offering was going outside of the local church all the way to Jerusalem, it was a special project. The presumption here is that they were already taking care of the needs within their own church body, is the idea there. Uh, As New Testament believers, we don't tithe because we're under the Mosaic law, I guess is the way to say it. We tithe because it's the biblical starting point in our giving, and because it's the minimum expression of generosity found in the Scriptures. And as New Testament believers, we are encouraged to to grow in the grace of giving, motivated by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who inspires the amount and uh, serves as our motivation, even with special offerings. Uh, Last thing I would say about this section, chapter 9 and verse 6, Paul uses an agricultural analogy. And he encourages the uh, Corinthians to participate in this Jerusalem offering generously when he says this. The point is, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. It's a farming analogy. We understand it. If the farmer keeps all of his seed in the barn and doesn't scatter any seed, well, you're not going to get a harvest. And Paul uses that analogy specifically within the context of a discussion about their financial giving. So one quick story, and then I'll move on. Toward the end of the year, last year, November, December, we were encouraging all of us to really kind of step up year-end giving. Church family did a great job. You know, our forward giving and all of that. And Catherine and I were looking at our finances and our forward uh, pledge and all of that. And we said, well, we have a little bit more to do. Uh, But we maybe have some time. We had given a large amount up front and then, you know, the the trailing amount as we got closer uh, to the end. And uh, there was a part of me that was saying, no, I don't want to write the check in December. I'll just wait until, you know, we'll continue our regular giving. And I just felt like the Lord said, no, write the check. So we did. Wrote the check. And then I get this uh, letter from my mortgage company in January that was telling us to cash the check they sent us in November. I'm saying, what check? I don't miss things like that. (laughs) Like, what what check are you talking about? I called them up. I'm thinking, is this an escrow overage? It can't be. We don't escrow, we self escrow. Uh, We we refinanced uh, a while back. Uh, I I don't know where it came from. But they confirmed, no, we, we owe you this money. And uh, they said, we'll we'll reissue the check. It'll take about 30 days to get there. It got here this past week. By the way, it was 30% more than the check I wrote in December. Listen, God God knows. He knows. And I'm not advocating prosperity theology. I'm not. Paul just says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. And you you know where the line is drawn there where you feel a little bit uncomfortable about writing the check that's that size. But God has an amazing way of knowing what we don't know. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills and even a little mortgage escrow over here or whatever it was, some kind of overage. And he sends it our way. All right, on to chapters 10 through 13, and we'll land the plane here. This is where Paul finally turns his attention to his minority opposition. He's been getting warmed up until now, but he demonstrates how to appeal to those who resist your ministry leadership. He's humble about defending his conduct, his character, and even his calling as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He begins in chapter 1 by saying, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. In other words, I'm not sending an emissary. I'm not sending, you know, this is you and I having a conversation, opposition. I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. And then immediately after that introduction in chapter 10, he states that the weapons of his warfare are not of the flesh. Why would Paul suddenly transition into a brief discussion about spiritual warfare? Well, he knew that he was in a spiritual battle. And he was gonna fight this battle with this minority opposition with spiritual weapons, not weapons of the flesh.
1: Dr. Ron Jones will be right back with the second half of today's message, 2 Corinthians, Defense of Ministry. Stop by somethinggoodradio.org anytime to find out more about the ministry, to ask our ministry team to pray for you, or to order selected resources from our online store. Here's something else for you when you make a donation to Something Good Radio today. We'll say thank you by giving you access to a new resource that goes along with his current series, Route 66, The Ultimate Road Trip Through the Bible. It's an e-book from Dr. Ron Jones that covers all 13 of the Pauline epistles. Request it today for your gift to Something Good Radio. Give online at somethinggoodradio.org or mail your gift to P.O. Box 6245, Virginia Beach, Virginia 23456 or call our offices at 757-276-1099. Let's rejoin Ron for the rest of today's message, 2 Corinthians, Defense of Ministry.
0: We get ourselves in trouble when we fight with weapons of the flesh and manipulation and all that kind of stuff when people are opposing us so-called super apostles had beguiled the corinthians into believing paul was not trustworthy and that he lacked apostolic credentials and even though they persuaded a mere minority in the church of this vicious falsehood i'm reminded of what paul said to the corinthians in his first letter a little leaven leavens the whole lump yeah a little erroneous falsehood leavens the whole lump Uh, An an opposing minority, even a few voices, whispering things that are false can cause a lot of damage. Forced by the situation to boast about his credentials and to defend his ministry. This humble apostle reluctantly defends his superior knowledge, chapter 11, verses 1 to 6, his generosity and grace. His integrity and then he closes out chapter 11 by boasting again about his sufferings he already talked in chapter 10 about you know the five times he was lashed by the jews and the rods that they hit him with and all that other stuff now he says in verse 30 if i must boast (laughs) i will boast of the things that show my weakness uh, the God and father of the Lord Jesus Christ, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the, king, the governor rather, under King Eratos, was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. I mean, how humiliating for the great apostle to have to escape the city this way. But Paul says, listen, if I have to boast, allow me a little foolishness, he says. I'm going to boast of those things that make me look weak because even when I'm weak, I'm stronger than you. That's the implication there. And then in one of the most mysterious passages in the entire New Testament, Paul boasts of the heavenly revelation that he received and the thorn that God placed in his flesh to keep him humble. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 10 is one of those sections of Scripture. If you're If you're a Bible student, you've read this before. Paul's thorn in the flesh. He refers in the third person to some man who was 14 years ago caught up into the third heaven. He's he's trying to be so humble and self-effacing about this that he, you know he's talking about himself, but he's, he's speaking in the third person here. And he's willing to share his personal experience. And it's sort of like a poker player who looks across the table and reveals his hand at that moment, and he's got a royal flush. And the opposition can do nothing but fold their cards and push them toward the muck pile. When Paul Paul went there, about the revelation that God had given to him, the heavenly revelation, being caught up into the third heavens and given the thorn in the flesh lest he would be puffed up and prideful. His opposition had nothing on him. It was a drop the mic moment, to put it another way. And then in chapter 13, the final chapter, Paul brings final warnings to his opposition. By the way, there's no, there's no opposition facing me right now, so I don't have an axe to grind here. I'm just trying for us to get you know, into this experience with Paul vicariously, So we understand what what, what is behind this letter, what the man has been going through. He challenges his opposition to bring the kind of evidence against him that would stand up in a court of law. He says in chapter 13 and verse 1, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. That was legal language. He says a similar thing, I believe, in his letter to Titus, where he says, do not receive a charge against a pastor or an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You have a charge against a pastor or a leader, you better bring it. Bring the evidence, the kind of evidence that would stand up to the scrutiny of a law case. All right? Or don't bring it. And uh, Paul knew the charges against him were flimsy. And then he turns the spotlight on his accusers by saying this in verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? Why does Paul encourage the minority opposition in the Corinthian church to examine themselves? Because they were acting like unbelievers. They were acting like the pagans from which they came. And he's saying, Don't act that way. I'm not going to judge you. I'm not your judge. But you need to examine yourselves to determine what, are you really a believer in Jesus Christ? We're in the ministry of reconciliation, not division here. And he's stern with them, but in a very humble way. I'm probably giving more sternness than, than you know, is coming through in the text. And rather than pouring further shame on them, I love the way Paul lands the plane here. He ends by calling them brothers. What a gracious man he is. To call these who were opposing him and undermining his authority. Hey, you're part of the family if you know Christ. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he encourages them, listen to these words, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, another, and live in peace. He's striving toward reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ. And then the last verse, chapter 13 and verse 14, look at it. It's a Trinitarian moment. He mentions the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because nothing is, is more important in the, the family of God than the kind of unity, the blessed unity we find in the Trinity. And nothing but good theology, modeled by the Godhead itself, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship and harmony with one another. That needs to be our modeling in the body of Christ. Gone with the divisions, gone with the flimsy accusations, he says aim for restoration, and comfort one another. I love how the Apostle Paul fights for this church and um, for them to be united in Christ. But as we'll learn uh, in a few weeks, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he says, um, you've got to work hard to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Because in every one of Paul's letters that we're going through right now, he talks about divisions and false doctrine that crept into the church and threatened to undermine these, these first century churches. Divi- if the devil doesn't get you on false doctrine, he'll get you on divisions. If he doesn't get you on divisions, you know, he'll, he'll introduce some false doctrine. Sometimes both at the same time. And so you, you, you fight for that unity. You pray for that unity. Listen, instead of joining the opposition against your pastor, pray for unity and pray for those who shepherd God's people well. And be a part of the ministry of reconciliation. That's what God's all about. Reconciling us to him and us, you know, being his ambassadors that reconcile broken relationships and bring grace uh, to situations. Amen.
1: Thanks so much for being with us for today's Something Good radio message, 2 Corinthians Defense of Ministry. And Dr. Ron Jones joins me in the studio now. Ron, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul refers to human beings as fragile and easily broken jars of clay. And you yourself use the expression cracked pots. Not crackpots, pots, but two words, cracked pots. Can you talk a little more about what this means? Absolutely, I can, Brian. Now, when I say cracked pots,
0: uh, two words, as you said, I simply mean imperfect people who have holes through which Jesus can shine his light, myself included. I think about the Corinthians and the culture from which they came, depraved, rebellious, immoral, idolatrous, And yet over time, not only did the new believers grow in their faith, but others came to faith in Christ because they saw God's mercy and goodness even through the cracks and holes in those who had already come to the faith. Now, I'm not advocating that we sin on purpose so that uh, people may see the mercy of God. I'm simply saying that God sometimes shines through us best when we're at our worst because that's when the goodness and mercy of God is most needed and most clearly seen. Now, Brian, if we were all perfect, I mean, you know, Garden of Eden before the fall perfect, God wouldn't need to shine through our weaknesses. Uh, There wouldn't be any. And one day, that's exactly the kind of world we'll live in, one where there are no cracks, no scars, no chips, uh, no holes, no questions about who God is. But in the meantime, God has gladly chosen to reveal himself to the lost, and he gladly chooses to use us, we who are cracked and broken and vulnerable and sometimes rebellious. He has chosen us as Christians to show an unbelieving world that God is able and willing and uh, uh, works uh, tirelessly, as it were, to uh, draw imperfect people to himself and to redeem them. The Corinthians, as I said, are a great example of this, and so is the Apostle Paul, who once said that He boasts of his weaknesses because when he is weak, God is strong and is made more evident to those around him. Let me quickly close with this. When we are weak, he is strong. Uh, When there's less of us, there's more of him. And right now, that's precisely what the world needs,
1: more of him more than ever. Such a great answer, Ron. Thanks for sharing those final thoughts from the book of 2 Corinthians So, Ron, let's turn our attention to our next stop on our road trip through the Bible. Tell us where you're headed next time as you move ahead in your current teaching series. Well, Brian, our next stop on the ultimate
0: road trip through the Bible is the book of Galatians. And the central message Paul wants to get across is to encourage the church not to submit to a yoke of slavery. Now, this slavery to which he refers is slavery to a distorted gospel being preached to the Galatians by a group of loyal Jews known as the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers embraced Paul's gospel teaching, but with one little caveat. As long as the gospel also included circumcision, as long as adherence to the Mosaic law was part of the gospel message, they were in full agreement. Well, as you can imagine, Paul would have none of it. How did he handle it? What did he say? Well, these are questions I'll answer next time as I move ahead in my teaching
1: series Route 66, the ultimate road trip through the Bible. That's next time in Dr. Ron Jones' message, Galatians, Freedom from Religion. Join us then for Something Good. Now for Ron and the entire team here at Something Good Radio, I'm Brian Davis. Thanks for listening.